Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So as I was preparing for this last sermon, I I have a a program that will let me search the entire scriptures for a particular word. And so I searched for judge and judgment, and a lot of the Old Testament came up immediately. And there's a lot of good stuff in the Old Testament about judgment and, and, and being a judge. And then there's a lot of stuff in there that's not helpful for our discussion today. And that's partially because our understanding of how God wants us to behave unfolds over time. God didn't just lay out everything on day one. Could you imagine if we sat Emerson down and we read to her all 66 books of the Bible at one time, and then we read to her the book of discipline, you know, our law book of the United Methodist Church, and then we said, okay, now you have it all, Emerson, and you never need to know anything else. And Emerson would probably go, yeah. But the truth is that we have to continually open up our minds and our hearts to be open to God increasing our knowledge. God doesn't give us so much information at any one time that we can't process it. That's one of the gracious things about scripture is that there is so much information here, but this is ours. We can go back upon this and read it and meditate on it and look at it in new life situations and go back and forth to it. Imagine if at one point to become a member of the church, you had to read the whole Bible and then we took it away and you could never have it again. What a destructive thing that would be. Instead, God has graciously given this into our hands and said, read it over and over again in your life. Explore what it has to say to you, not just today, but in tomorrow and in the days to come. Look and see how things change because they do change. Our understanding, we grow in our love. And in the Old Testament, there was an emphasis upon earthly judges. People that God would call up to be leaders, whether it was political or military and sometimes religious, God would call up these leaders and then ask these people to help shepherd Israel. And Israel needed a lot of shepherding. And so God would ask them to do these things. And sometimes their words would be rather harsh. Sometimes their actions could be painful to witness and to read about. But ultimately, God was trying to drive people back into a right relationship with their God. And it's hard for us to sometimes put that in perspective, especially since words like judgment and judge have very real cultural and political connotations here in the United States. So when we hear judge, you know, you shall not judge, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't look at something and say, you know what, God says that that's bad for us and that's not good for me. That's not what Jesus or anybody else is saying. God wants us to recognize that there are some things that we can do that we shouldn't do. Because we have been given incredible power and authority and free will and the ability to make decisions. But just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And Jesus is reminding us of that. That we have been given the gift of exploring our world, exploring our emotions, exploring relationships. And we have to be careful how we do that because there is great power there and the ability to cause suffering and pain. And so judging is not that we think that we're not completely relativist, that there aren't some things that are bad. The Bible is very clear that there are some things that are bad. You should not be murdering people. You should not be stealing from people. 
You should not be telling lies. Those are bad things. And they're bad things because they hurt other people. They hurt us when we engage in them, and they hurt other people. And so we are not to be those that are engaging in that kind of behavior. Instead, we are asked to look at the world in a different way. Our scripture today started out with, Be merciful as God your Father is merciful. That's the standard by which we should be living our lives. We seek to be merciful people and grant grace and forgive because that is what God does for us. That's the standard that God shows us. We're going to be merciful. God chose to be merciful to Emerson, and Emerson hasn't even done anything wrong. But sure enough, the longer Emerson lives, the more opportunity she'll have to do what she wants to do. And sometimes what she wants to do will not be nice. And sometimes the things that she does will cause other people pain and suffering. But the glory is that God is not going to give up on Emerson just because she gets to the point in her life where she can take something from somebody or she can say something or she can use that mouthful of teeth to bite somebody. Emerson is going to have the opportunity every single day to grow in God's love. And those of us who have embraced baptism, whether as infants or youth or adults, those of us who have been done that have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to do the very same thing, to recognize that God is at work in us and through us and allowing us to manifest what Jesus is saying. To be merciful is a powerful and mighty gift of God. Amen. There are plenty of places where mercy is unknown. There are political systems in the world. There are military systems in the world. There are social systems in the world where mercy is not even a concept. But in Christianity and our faith and our belief and hopefully in the church, mercy is the standard. We don't default to punishment. We default to understanding and trying to cultivate a relationship where we can work through divisions and obstacles and misunderstandings and pain and suffering so that ultimately we don't have to say to somebody, get out, we're done with you. Church should be a place where people don't have to fear making mistakes. Let me say that again. Church should be a place where people don't have to fear making mistakes. It's a place where we can explore the power that's been given to us. We can explore thoughts. I mean, it's a time for us to engage in conversation and look at new ways of doing things. If it's more effective and impactful and helps build the kingdom here, then we shouldn't be afraid of striving and trying. But yet, we have a culture that tells us that mistakes are bad. And if we make a mistake, that maybe we're bad too. And that's the difference in how the church and the scriptures and our God understand judgment. For us to look at something that's going on and go, well, that's clearly not helpful. It's not helpful or it's hurtful or that doesn't seem to be a good thing because look how much pain and suffering it is causing to people. If we look at things like that, then we are not judging people. We are not even really judging their actions because we've been given a standard. God has set the standard for us and invites us to engage in our world, in our thoughts, in our conversations, and in our relationships, and look and see if the things that we are doing, saying, experiencing, and living out are in conflict with what God's standard is for us. And sometimes things seem to rub both ways, and we go, well, it doesn't seem like there's a really good option here. God's standard for us and everything is do the merciful thing. When in doubt, be merciful. That's God's standard for us. That is not a worldly, earthly standard. That is a divine standard to be merciful above all. 
But then we have to wrestle with this idea of judgment. What is judgment? Well, the scriptures tell us repeatedly in the Old Testament and the New Testament that there will be a day of judgment, that when Jesus returns to us, that he shall be the judge, that every human being that has ever lived, now or in the days to come, will be resurrected and presented before the Son, risen and triumphant on the throne, and all of us will be judged. Judged about whether or not we will come into the kingdom or we never will. And that can be a terrifying thing. And God doesn't want us to get so consumed with that moment and in fear that we are incapacitated in our faith and our good works here. Instead, what God says to us is, I am empowering you to determine what that day will look like. If you judge other people, then so shall you be judged. If you condemn them, then so shall I condemn you. However, if you forgive them, I will forgive you. If you give generously, then you shall receive. It will be given to you. And God doesn't just say it's going to be an equal balance here, right? If you give a cup, then I, will, then I will give you a cup back. God says if you look at the measuring of things, if you want to measure things, if you're one of those people, then it will be pe- pressed down in there and overflowing. You will get so much more back than you could have ever fathomed because I love you that much. Because I am willing to set a standard of mercy that is so incredible that you will have no choice but to be merciful people. And that's the standard by which we live in Christianity. Now the hard reality is that there are plenty of Christians out there giving us a bad name. There are Christians standing around with giant signs that have words about God hates these people and these people are going to burn in hell. That is condemnation. When you decide that you know who God hates, you are condemning people. When you decide that you know where somebody's going, I don't know where I'm going. I certainly don't know where you're going. I know where I'm hoping to go. I know where I'm hoping you go. But for us to stand up as Christians, and that's power and authority if you're a Christian. If you stand up as a Christian and you want to say to somebody, all of these people in whatever category, all of these people, God hates them and they're going to burn in hell. That's a pretty clear picture of judgment and condemnation. And who are we to make that decision? Who are we to decide that an entire group of people are hated by God? And my struggle with that is always, I look at these signs, and I've had many opportunities to see them. There were, there were a radical Christians that used to stand out on the street corners in Virginia Beach out on the oceanfront with signs like this and bullhorns and yelling that God hates people and that they're all going to burn in hell. And then when I went to call general conference this past February, I was able to see even more people because Westboro Baptist showed up. And they're standing there with their signs, and I'm sitting here going, you know, it's really funny, because I thought God so loved the world, not God so hated certain people. I thought there were plenty of places in Scripture where God said, you know what, you've messed up so bad that I should just obliterate you, but I love you too much to do that. You seem irredeemable, but my love is greater than your sin. And so we're going to work through this. And time and time again, the Scriptures tell us that God refrains from condemnation. God looks at us and goes, you know what? I don't really have to tell you, but you know that what you did today is not good. You know. You're suffering. People you love and are invested in, they're suffering. We're not stupid. We know what's going on when we mess up. And God is well aware of that. And God says, you know, we need to work on this. Not, that's it, you're done. Two strikes, three strikes, you're out. God doesn't do that to us. Most of us wouldn't make it past Emerson's age if God did that. But instead, God is continually saying to us, leave the judgment to me, all right? If anybody's going to decide who is hated, I'll handle that. 
I think God is quite capable of letting us know how God feels. In fact, I believe there's 66 books that get us started and letting us know how God feels. But not everything in our world, not every instance is in this book, but this book is a place to start. And God wants us to be in relationship with God. Here's the other thing that I will call out for some people. I don't think God spends time in relationship with an individual Christian telling them who to hate. I have never experienced that in my life. I have a pretty healthy prayer life. I have a really healthy scripture life. And I've never experienced God saying to me, you know what, you should hate them. I hate them. Let's team up together and hate them together. And won't our love and our grace grow because we hate the same person? I've never heard God say that. I've never had that experience. I know that I have been so angry with people that it was borderline hate. And God said to me, you need to set that aside. That is unhealthy. That is not helpful. It is not restorative. It is certainly not working towards reconciliation. And what kind of glory and honor are you giving to me if people think that you hate people? And it's not good when God smacks you down in your prayer life. That feels pretty bad. But never has God told me that I should hate someone. Because again, every time you think to yourself, man, I don't like you so much, I can hate you. I hear God saying, you know what? I so love the world. I so love the world that I gave my only begotten child. That whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so who are we to decide who God hates and who God will condemn and who is it that God is not going to grant the opportunity to repent? Because God says, if you want to start making those judgments, I'm going to hold you to the same level. I have set a standard, and that standard is mercy. And anything less than mercy in our lives, anything less is the standard by which God will judge us. And so we have a responsibility. Whether it's the children that were up here for children's time or Emerson who just received her baptism in the Lord's name, all of these are looking to us as youth and adults and they're wondering, what is the standard? Is the standard that we forgive one another but everybody on the outside has a different level? Is the standard that everybody is equally loved? Is the standard that we tend to default to skepticism and hatred rather than engaging in love and grace? And we get to decide what that looks like. And we have to be very careful what we decide here and now because that is what God will turn around and say to us. Is our life marked more by hatred and unreasonable standards and condemning certain people, writing them off, casting them aside, sending them away? Or is our life marked by love and a desire to be in right relationship with people over being right? We said that before. You can spend your entire life trying to be right. That is not being righteous. Righteous is something God bestows. Righteous is something God gives us. And that's a merciful thing because none of us are righteous. None of us can stand before the throne. All of us have things that would keep us from entering into the kingdom to come. All of us. And if we're really honest, there, all of us have things that we don't even want to talk about Amen. that are that bad. But God says, my grace is greater than your sin. My mercy is greater than your flaws and the suffering that you have brought forth. And my love is greater than your death, your guilt, your sin, and your hatred. Amen. And I'm willing to work on you and through you and with you to bring something new into the world. 
So if we get to the point as being Christians when we think to ourselves, okay, so there are Christians out there giving us a bad name. They're out there. And unfortunately, a lot of them have real podiums and the ability to speak out and be heard. And we think to ourselves, oh my gosh, people are listening to this. And they think this is us. What do we do? What do we do? I mean, I'm not going to go follow around Pat Robertson and take his microphone. It's not going to happen. But a lot more people listen to the things Pat Robertson says than listen to me. So here's what we do as Christians. We have to be vocal and outspoken about, no, that is not who we are. That is not who we are. So what I wish I had done when I saw those people with their signs is say, you know what? The standard by which you judge and condemn is the standard by which you will be judged and condemned. Wow, you think Jesus feels this way? That's interesting. I thought we served a Savior that when he was up on the cross said, forgive them. That's interesting. Tell me about your theology that makes you think it's okay to hate people. Tell me about that. Tell me about why you feel better hating than you do being merciful. Tell me about that. Because too often we just go, this is crazy and I'm not even touching crazy. Right? We give a wide berth to crazy. You ever notice that? They're crazy. We want to walk on this side of the street. But they're not crazy. They're human. They're sinners, just like us. And sometimes what needs to happen is that we need to be able to say, you know what, I'm sorry you feel that way. That doesn't feel like authentic Christianity to me. And I hope you're aware that you're giving all of us a bad name right now. You're giving all of us a bad name, which means that we have to work that much harder to redeem it. They will remember the people with the nasty signs. They don't remember the people that have the food pantry three days a week. They don't remember the people that are happy to respond with money in times of critical financial need. They don't remember the people that are willing to pray for people that everybody else has written off or engage with people that people that have been condemned by the same hatred and the signs. They don't see that. Instead, what they see is the negative because we are a people that love negative images and negative words. That's what we see. And that's what our culture gives a podium to, right? You get an outlet. If you want to hate somebody, they'll put you on TV. If you want to sit here and love all people, they're like, no, that's not going to sell. Nobody wants to hear that you love everybody. Nobody wants to hear that you serve a God that will forgive anybody anything. That's ridiculous. And yet that is precisely who we are. We are not called to be people that are so judgmental. We are not called to be people who transfer our hatred onto other people, who use our sinfulness to undergird our inappropriate relationships. Relationships that aren't even really relationships. Instead, it's throwing out hatred and condemnation. When you choose, when you choose to look at somebody and go, you are hopeless, you will never be anything more than you are, God couldn't even love you no matter what you did because all of these things make you unlovable. When you start saying, you know, that person is evil, that person is going to burn in hell, that person, you might as well just kill him because there's no coming back from this. That is condemnation, and that belongs to one person and one person only, and that is Jesus Christ. And it's amazing that Christians don't tend to think when you do that, when you say those things, you are stealing from Jesus. That is his right. And Jesus doesn't like theft. We've already covered that. Jesus doesn't like theft. And quite frankly, I don't really know any Christian that really thinks they're qualified to get, get back, Jesus, I got this. Move out of the way. I'm just going to sit on your throne. Let me take a break, and I'll hang out here on your throne for a little bit, and I'll take care of a good 10,000 people while I sit here. Jesus doesn't want us doing that. 
Jesus wants us to be the people that are like, hey, do you know where the throne is? Let me show you the way. Hey, are you trying to get in? Me too. Let's go in together. That's what Jesus wants us to be. But instead, time and time again throughout history, and especially now, you can hear the negatives coming out of Christians. And the more and more that Christianity is heard being negative, the more that we are tainting Jesus Christ. We are making him impossible for people to approach, people to know, and God help us people to love. We cannot become barriers to people loving Jesus Christ. That must be a sin above all sins. To accept grace for ourselves and then deny it for somebody else. Who are we? Who are we? So as we are continuing to ask ourselves, hopefully daily, Lord, what would you have me do and who would you have me be? God says very clearly in our scripture reading today, I want you to be merciful. I want you to stop spending your time judging and condemning. Stop that. Stop telling me who to hate and who I should put in hell. And instead, focus on forgiving people and giving freely. If you focus on those two things, you won't have time for judging and condemning. And if you do that, you will be merciful. You will be showing the world me. And above all, you will be the disciple that Christ died for you to be. And that is our struggle. That's what we have to work through every single day. And if we held ourselves to the same standard that we hold some other people to, what we would come to find is nobody's getting in. Nobody's getting in. Even Mother Teresa had things she didn't like about herself. But we are here because God's mercy is greater. Amen. And we have to start living that out. So when we feel our emotions coming on that are so negative and powerful and that can quickly manifest into condemnation, when we feel ourselves growing frustrated and our sin seems to be overtaking our thought process and our words start to spew hatred, that's the moment we need to stop and go, be merciful as God is merciful. Mercy should be our default. Jesus said this. We got all confused at one point. We thought it was all about sacrifice. Jesus said, I don't want sacrifice. I want mercy. Because mercy is a sacrifice. Mercy means not lording over somebody else. Mercy means that we give up our hatred and our desire to make someone suffer as we have suffered because mercy is to sacrifice all of that and let them try again. To set them free. Mercy is liberation. And we serve a God who not only has liberated all of humankind, but has liberated each and every single one of us. God has set us free. And that should be the message that we are projecting to the world. That we have been set free. That people who struggle just to eat have been set free because we will give them food. People who struggle to be accepted will find a home in the body of Christ because we are here to welcome the stranger so that they will no longer be a stranger, but they will be one of us. We have been liberated that we might in turn liberate other people. And when we're doing that work, there's no time for judgment. There's no time for that condemnation. Leave it in God's hands. God's better qualified than we are anyway. I know that sometimes we think we know what other people are thinking or feeling. If you pay attention to what people say, you hear that all the time. I know you think. You do? You know what I think? Probably not if you're telling me that right now. You know, you seem to feel. Do I seem to feel? Well, how about I tell you how I feel? 
Instead of that, if we were focused more on, you know, this happened and I don't understand where this came from, or you said this and help me understand what was behind that. If we empower people to tell you their thoughts and their feelings, because there's plenty of scripture that says only God can judge the intentions of the heart. Only God knows what's really going on in here. And so we continue to take God's precedence there too. That God is the one who gets to judge thoughts and feelings. We don't do that. We can only go by what we see and what we hear happening. And if somebody hurts us, then we're honest about it. I'm hurt. And if somebody says something that tears us in two, then we say, you know, those words really hurt me. Help me understand because I don't think that you want to hurt. But that's for us to stop and be merciful. And it requires us to be patient. It requires us to be willing. And above all, it requires us to pay attention to the peace of God's self that was given to us. And that's what our prayer is. That's why we took the time to give Emerson a little piece of God's self in the Holy Spirit. Because we believe that as she continues to grow up, that long after these waters have dried on her, that a piece of God's self will dwell in her. And one day, Emerson will have the opportunity to either condemn or to be merciful. And we believe that because of God's presence with her, Emerson can make the correct choice. But Emerson won't know that unless she sees it. She won't know it unless she sees it in other people who too have received their piece of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're up to today. Living out our baptism, living out the gospel that says be merciful above all. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. In a moment, we are going to worship the Lord with our tithes and our offerings. And to be judgmental, are we just judgmental? What is this about? And part of what makes this so difficult for us is that there is a divine understanding of the word judge and judgment. And then there's an earthly one, what the world says about judging and judgment. And so as I was getting myself ready for the sermon, I have a computer program that will allow me to search for any word in all of the 66 books of scripture. And when I started to search for judge and judgment, a lot of Old Testament stuff came up first. And sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not. And this time I was grateful to see how things had sort of changed. When I started reading through all these verses, hundreds of verses that came up, it was very apparent to me, and hopefully this will be conveyed to you, that our understanding of what God wants from us changes over time. So this morning at 9.30, we baptized this little girl named Emerson, who was eight months old. And could you imagine if before Emerson was allowed to be baptized, we had to sit down and read to her all of the Bible and all of our Book of Discipline in the United Methodist Church, and then tell her at eight months, that's it, you get no more. You have to understand everything right now because it's already been given to us, and then you have to not cry as we apply water to your head three times. No child could live through that. I doubt there are very many adults here that would want to experience that either. Imagine if we gave you the Bible and said, read this rich love letter to all humanity that expresses how much God has cultivated us and loves us and wants to be in right relationship with us, and then we're going to take it back from you so that you can never read it again. You have to get it all on the first reading. How horrific would that be? It helps if you do have a first reading before I take it back. But it is important for us to realize that things unfold over time. Just as Emerson received her baptism this morning, her relationship with God will grow and unfold over the course of her entire life. If she lives to be a hundred and eight, 
It will take 108 years for her to continue to grow in God's love and really experience all that God has to give her. And even then, 108 years wouldn't be enough. That's why God offers us eternity. Because ultimately, there is so much for God to give us and convey to us that it will take time for that to happen. And we live in a world of instant gratitude. We live in a world that wants it right now. Right? I don't care how, I just want it now. And I want it delivered. That's how we want it. Instead, we have been encouraged and invited into a lifelong journey. And our understanding of judgment has shifted throughout time. Now, in an earthly secular explanation, judgment is when you decide whether something is good or bad, right? That might be what you're determining. And when you see something and you go, well, that's not good or that's bad. And there's a certain amount of that in the scripture. God equips us with plenty of scripture that lets us know about some things that are wrong for us to engage in. Some things are always wrong. It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to lie. And those things are given. They don't take a lot of discernment on our part. Wow, someone just got murdered. Let's think about whether that's okay. That doesn't need to happen because we're very clear on the fact that that is wrong. What happens then, though, is that in an earthly perspective, we then take that, well, that person murdered somebody. That is bad. That is wrong. And so there must be something implicitly bad and wrong and perhaps even irredeemable about the person that did it. That's when we have shifted out of judgment into condemnation, which is one of the words that Jesus uses in the reading today. That when you move into condemnation, you are then pronouncing whether or not the person can ever be saved. We hear these words all the time. They're evil. They're irredeemable. They can never come back from this. We have to kick them out or even kill them because there's no way that they are ever going to be anything else but what they are now. And that is precisely what Jesus was encouraging the apostles then and us today, not to do. If you'll notice that the reading started out with a standard. Be merciful as God is merciful. God sets the standard for us, and that standard is mercy. And in our world, mercy is the last thing that we pay attention to. Most people don't want mercy. It's not very exciting, and it's certainly not going to draw a lot of viewers to whatever program you're watching. It's not going to sell a lot of newspapers if we find out that people are merciful. Instead, there's something very human about desiring to see people punished, painfully punished. And yet the standard that we are given in Scripture is that God says, mercy above all. Jesus will say the same thing in the Gospel account of Matthew. He'll say, you, you're confused. You think that what God wants, what I want as the Son of Man, is that I want you to sacrifice things. That's not what I'm asking for. It's not things that I need you to sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice and therefore bring about mercy. Because mercy is a sacrifice. When we have been wronged, we want to see the person understand this. We want them to understand our pain and suffering. Some of us even want them to suffer as we have suffered. So in order for us to sacrifice that desire, that longing, we set it aside and choose mercy. I have suffered, but my suffering is wrong, and I don't want you to suffer, so therefore I will set aside my desire for vengeance and instead offer you liberation from that. I will offer you a chance to move on and go forward into a bright day. We serve at the heart of things in the scripture, a liberating God, a God who physically liberated the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt and their slavery there, a God who literally gave people the opportunity to be freed from their guilt and their sin through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and a God who even today says that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, all of us can be liberated from our sin and guilt. 
That is who we serve. That is the model, the standard, the ideal. And we are called to ascend to that level, to seek to be a merciful people. Even though there's a part of us that, yeah, you know what? I would like to see them embarrassed. Yeah, I would like to see them suffer. I would like for them to know. Maybe not know equal to what I said, but maybe their punishment includes a little bit more pain and suffering than mine. You know, a little bit of interest, taxable interest, we'll call it. We like to see people understand what we go through, but you can have understanding without making someone else suffer. It's called empathy. And as Jesus is trying to get the apostles then and those of us now who choose to follow him to recognize this difference, that we are not called to be a people that condemn other people. We realize, though, in this world, there are plenty of Christians that are choosing this lifestyle, the lifestyle of Christians being judgmental. You can see it all the time. Our brothers and sisters in Westboro Baptist love to display this to the world. They love to do it on national media. They love to do it on an international scale. There are other Christians that have powerful podiums and voice boxes where they are able to t- tell the world that there are people that God hates. And there are people that God wants to send to an eternity in hell of suffering and burning. And yet that's not what Jesus is saying. I had an opportunity to actually stand across the street from Westboro Baptist when I went to call General Conference in February in St. Louis. And there I stood as they held large signs that says, God hates these people. They will burn in hell. And I remember being completely turned off by this concept and then looking around and seeing all these other people that were trying to go about their daily lives in St. Louis and going, good Lord, they think this is us. They think that we are this. Because the media was there giving them the voice and the visuals and projecting that out all over the country and the world, letting people think that Christians think this is okay. And what do we do about that? I mean, first of all, they had police set up so that you couldn't get over to see them. Not that I was really chomping at the bit to go confront some Westboro Baptists. But as I watched this, I thought to myself, this doesn't make sense to me. This is not how I understand who we're supposed to be. Because when I'm reading on the sign, Jesus hates them, all I'm thinking is, but the gospel account of John says God so loved the world that God sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have life eternal. Something doesn't fit. And yet, the image that is being projected, the speech that is getting all the play, is antithetical to the gospel account of John. Now, there are places in Scripture where you can find the word hate. There are places in Scripture where you can even find God hates. A lot of those are in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are songs. It's a song book. And as is popular in songs, people are expressing emotion. Not necessarily really good doctrinal theology, but they're expressing human emotion. And you have to be aware of what you're quoting and what you're citing. But then in our call to worship, there was a psalm that was listed there that said that it is God who shall judge, not us. God will guide. That's God's reference point there. And then in the book, the reading from the book of Hebrews, we find out that God is saying, I am qualified to do this. I can handle this. I know what your heart says and what your mind says, and I don't need anybody else to help me. It's not like Jesus is saying, who would like to volunteer on the day of judgment to come and sit on the throne while I take a bathroom break? That's not part of the scriptures. Because I'm sure there are some of us that would love to get 10 minutes in that seat. 10 minutes in that seat, and we could clear out at least 10,000 people real quick. But that's not what we are called to do. 
And quite frankly, Jesus tries to get us to think about things differently. Notice he starts out with things we're very familiar with. Judgment and condemnation. Yes, those come very naturally to us. We could spend a whole day talking about how we could judge these people and condemn these people. I mean, we could clear through that line. With the biblical imagery that comes out of the book of Revelation, we understand that every single person that has ever lived, from the dawn of humankind to the people that have not even been born and lived yet, all of them will be resurrected and they will come before Jesus on the day of judgment and Jesus will judge them. And the judgment will result in this. Are you into the kingdom? Are you welcomed in? Or are you forever out? And I'm sure a lot of us could think of some people we go, I don't know if they're going to make it. Maybe there are even some people that we're thinking to ourselves, I kind of hope they don't. But the truth is that that is Jesus' role. And not one person here or anywhere else in any church, in any office, anywhere is capable of judging that we don't know what is in the hearts and the minds of other people but we hear it all the time i know what you're thinking you're thinking that i'm thinking if you're telling me what i'm thinking then you really don't know what i'm thinking you know and you feel like this do i how do you know what i feel i feel like you're trying to tell me how i feel and that's really none of your business Instead, if we focused on the things that Jesus is inviting to fo- us to focus upon, our words and our actions, then that would be fine. Your words hurt me. I was hurt by your words. I don't know what's behind your words. I would love it if you would help illuminate for me what was going on there, but your words really hurt me. And I know that we're supposed to be in a right relationship, so can we talk about that and figure out how to get where we're supposed to be rather than me judging what was behind your words? And the same with actions. Why did you do that? That really hurt. Instead of going, well, clearly you hate me and hate all people like me. Instead, trying to figure out what is it that is happening here? Because God forbid any of us admit that we have said and done things that didn't reflect our true heart. Or that we have said and done things that didn't reflect how we really think and feel. There are plenty of times in our lives where we will try to do the right thing and because of the forces of this world and and the the redemption that needs to take place, even when we are trying to be good, we will do the wrong thing or we will say the wrong thing and we will hurt people. Even when you're trying. And the example I always give the kids is there are plenty of times where I have tried to hold the door for somebody and then you end up hitting somebody with the door. In fact, the most recent time I tried to do that, we were going to Harris Teeter and my son was with me and I saw somebody coming out and so I pulled the door back to try to open the door and I slammed it right into my kid. He was like, why did you do that? And I was like, yes, I'm clearly trying to face plant you with a door. No, I said, I was trying to open the door for this person. He's like, well, I'm here. And I was like, well, I didn't realize that. You know, if you would walk in a straight line or walk beside me and not dart everywhere, I might know where you are. But even when I was trying to do something good, you know, here I am now holding the door for this person coming out and like trying to apologize to my kid who's acting like I just punched him in the face. And I'm thinking, this is not how this was supposed to go. I was supposed to hold the door. This person was supposed to go out and go, thank you. And be like, okay, and go on my life. But because of the way things are, things happen that we don't intend. Now, blessedly, my kid knows that I don't typically beat him with doors. And so he didn't go, she's clearly an evil person who hates me, and I hope she burns in hell. But he did turn around and go, well, why did you do that? How did that happen? It just happened because I wasn't aware of where you were, and I'm sorry. That's clearly not what I meant to do. I was trying to help this gentleman, and then this happened. You know, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. You know, that kind of thing happens. He didn't default to, you must be evil and irredeemable, and I hope you burn in hell. Thank God. 
But how often do you hear those kinds of words and sentiments coming out of Christians? We are not equipped, empowered, nor is it appropriate for us to condemn another human being. That is not our role. The one who is omniscient and can see into the mind, into the heart, that is his role. And when you are taking the opportunity to judge somebody as irredeemable and condemn them that way, whether your words of condemnation include hell or burning or eternal punishment or not, when you take that moment and you do it, you are effectively saying, you know what, Jesus, I can do this better than you can. I don't need you to be the Lord and King and Savior of the world because I have this today. And Jesus is going, really, did you die on the cross? Did you suffer for all of this? What makes you think that you are equipped to do it? Because when we're too busy trying to make sure that the other person that we perceive has wronged us is suffering, what we're effectively doing is negating what Jesus said and did on the cross. Especially the part in the Gospel account of John where he looks down and he says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. Even he who was righteous and able to say, these people are irredeemable. He chose instead the path of mercy. Chose to offer mercy even as their actions and their unwillingness to speak up was causing him to die. He chose that path. And that is the path that we are called to walk. And that's hard because it's a lot easier to say, you know what, I'm done with you and I'm writing you off and I'm shaking you from my hands and I'm kicking you from the dust of my feet and I am moving on. That's easy. It's harder to choose to be in a relationship with somebody. It's harder to choose a path that includes constantly working on our language and on our actions, focusing on how we work together and how we don't work together, navigating that. It's easier to walk away than it is to double down and invest in somebody else. But we serve a God that didn't walk away. Countless times in the Old Testament when I was searching for judge and judgment, there were so many times where God would have been completely in the right to say, I'm done. I'm done. This is over. There's just no way. We're never coming back from this. And time and time again, God says, no, we're going to work on this. We're going to keep at it. I'm going to give you the sacrificial system. And in this way, in the sacrificial system, you can work on the reconciliation. Your physical actions will underscore that. And we can start to come back together. God raises up judges in the book of Judges, these people who are called up to be leaders, political, military, religious leaders that rise up and help bring everybody back into focus and guide the people. They weren't there to condemn the people and kill them. Instead, they were there to help bring them into a brighter place, move them into a place in relationship where they could really start to grow and flourish, where they could be the people that God had suffered that they might be. Creating something and then rearing it and bringing it out of bondage is suffering. God suffers for us. God chooses us time and time again when everything that we say and do indicates to the world that we have not chosen God. That we pick our way, we pick someone else's way, we pick convenience, we pick ease. Instead of turning around and saying, you know what, it's hard, but it's worth it, Lord. Mercy is hard work. It requires us to forego the joy of seeing someone else suffer. 
And I realize that that sounds perverse. Like, why would I take joy in the suffering of others? But does our culture not indicate that there are some people we should take joy in their suffering? There are some people that we deem to be so bad, so violent, so hateful, so irredeemable, that we should take joy in their suffering. And God says no. God doesn't take joy in our suffering. We serve a Savior who said, I didn't come here to condemn. I came here to heal and to save. And we are called to nothing less, to bring about healing and the invitation to the gospel of salvation. When we allow our personal issues, our pain, our suffering, all of which can cloud our minds and prevent us from focusing on what God really wants, when we allow that to pervert our understanding of mercy, then we are the ones failing. We are the ones that are not giving honor and glory to God because it's hard. And there are times looking back now where I wish I had said something about the signs at Westboro. I wish I had said, really, tell me about the theology that God hates these people because I read in the gospel account of John that God so loves us. Tell me about the theology that says that these people get to burn in hell and that somehow you get to lobby for that. Tell me about that. How, what kind of theology is that? Where, where do you get that kind of power from? Because I remember a Savior who died on the cross that said, forgive them. Making people think about what they're doing. When I was at a church in Norfolk, I used to spend a lot of time on the weekends in Virginia Beach, and there were Christians down there with bullhorns and signs, and, you know, God hates this other group of people, and they're going to burn in hell. And I'm thinking... Wow, it must be really exclusive to get into heaven. Everybody's going to burn in hell. And I can remember just being embarrassed by those people and being like, we just need to move. Let's just move. But then there was part of me that was angry because that's what people see and hear. They think that is Christianity. You hear it all the time. Christians are hypocrites. All they do is judge other people. And if you kept reading in the gospel account of Luke, we would have gotten to the very next part, which says, you know, don't judge the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a big log sticking out of yours. Because Jesus recognizes that. That we are harder on other people than we are on ourselves. Right? Or we recognize that we have flaws, but God loves us. So therefore, God's going to forgive us. And maybe God will forgive them, but I don't have to forgive them. And Jesus says, that's not the standard. Jesus gives us an incredible gift power and authority and gives us a place where we can step up into power and say you know what i can choose to judge or condemn you we have that power there are places in scripture where that's been given to us but jesus instead says why don't you focus on the other two focus on forgiveness and selfless giving if you focus on forgiveness and selfless giving you've got no time for the judgment and the condemnation you can fill every single day for 108 years with forgiveness and giving. And in the end, we're all going to be better off if that's what we do. It doesn't take a Christian to condemn somebody. It doesn't take a Christian to decide that somebody is evil. It takes a Christian to forgive somebody. It takes a Christian to decide to give and give and give. But unfortunately, the message that the world is getting about Christianity right now is not the good stuff. The, the mass media doesn't pour out here to see that we have a food pantry where we give away thousands of pounds of free food every year. They don't come here to see that. They don't come out to see, hey, this congregation gives money on behalf of people that don't even know them and aren't a part of them so that they can have a better life. 
We've given away over $15,000 in scholarships for the preschool, for people that weren't even members of the church so that their kids could have a jump start in their education. Nobody came to cover that. In fact, the last phone call I got from a media source was when they mistakenly thought that that flagpole across the street was ours. Why did you put that big flagpole up and what are you going to do with it? Yes, I put up a flagpole that's taller than our steeple. No. But that's what their interest was because they thought that we were going to start some issues here in Crozet. I don't know anything about the flagpole. Do you want to talk about the food pantry? No. I don't know anything about the flagpole. Would you like to talk about radical grace and forgiveness? No. Because they don't see it. If they could see it, if they had been impacted by it, then they would want to cover it. So our job is to make sure that people experience this. If we are truly going to be a liberated people of a liberating God, then we have to be willing to liberate other people in the name of our God. We have to be willing to set them free from our judgment, our, our decision that they are evil, or that they're just, that's just a really bad person. I can't love that person. They're that bad. Now, there are people that make it really hard for us to love them. There are people that make it so hard for us to love them that it is so tempting to just be like, Jesus, can you bring back smiting? It would be a really great day if he'll bring back smiting. I will give people lightning rods and we will just hang out and it'll be fine. But that's not what Jesus wants to do. Instead, Jesus says, you know, there's a day when others would be asking me to smite you. And I won't do that. There's a day when you're going to have a really bad day and you're going to mess up so bad that everybody will want to wash their hands of you, but I won't wash my hands of you. I will never turn my back on you. I will never forsake you. I will never condemn you as long as you want to continue trying. And until we say, you know what, God, I give up, God doesn't give up on us. That's who we serve. That's who we know. That's who we love. And this morning when I held this gorgeous little baby and I applied the water to her head and we prayed over her and we gave thanks for the fact that long before she committed her first sin, God was willing to forgive her. Because the day is going to come when Emerson's going to do something. Probably a lot of something if I know anything about kids. And when that day comes, unlike a lot of people in this world, Emerson will already know that God is with her and for her. Emerson will already know that there is a place in God's heart to forgive her and there is a place in God's kingdom for her for all time. And she will know that because when she was eight months old and she made some noise in a worship service, nobody said, that's it, you're too childish, you're too much of a baby, get out. Instead, people looked at her and said, I see hope, I see potential, I see God's goodness and God's grace in you. And one day, Emerson will grow up and look at other people and say, you know, I see God's goodness and grace in you. I see potential in you. And the gospel will go on. But if we spend all our time going, you know what? She's going to grow up to be one of those crazy teenagers. We're going to get a place for her over in juvenile detention right now. We're not even going to set up a college fund for her. We're going to set up a bail bond fund. Then that's what Emerson will be. But if we look at Emerson and we say, you are a beloved child of God, you were created in the image of our divine maker, and you are redeemable. That when the day comes and you mess up, Emerson, you are bigger than your mess-ups. 
You are greater than the culmination of your sin because you belong to God. And God has claimed you from eight months on. And even if there are human beings and God help us Christians that fail you, that do write you off, that do condemn you to something other than eternity in the kingdom to come, that God will never do that. And she has to encounter that message in people. She has to experience it in Christians like you and me. Or she won't believe it either. There's no amount of water that I can pour on Emerson that will let her know that she is loved if she doesn't hear it echoed in the words and in the deeds and in the relationships of the body of Christ. You are the means by which God continues to project the words that Jesus spoke. The words that he spoke in the gospel account of John, that he was here not to condemn but to save. The words that he echoed in the gospel account of Luke, that we should be merciful and forgive and give. And the words that he spoke from the cross, forgive them. If we are willing to set aside our human sinfulness that wants to see other people suffer, then instead we can plant seeds that will grow into hope and faith and love. But it requires us to be merciful. It requires us to sacrifice our desire to see other people suffer and be condemned. It requires us to be willing to recognize that in any person that causes us pain and suffering, there is the same piece of divine spark in them that is in us. And that we long instead, not for their condemnation, but their restoration. That we want to see people transformed, not destroyed. And if we want to see people destroyed, we don't need Jesus for that. But Jesus has come to each and every one of us so that we might be redeemed. And redemption is the first step on the path of restoration. May we each, in our own way, in our own voice, in our own gospel truth this week, strive to first be merciful, forgiving and giving other people, as we would like to see others be that way to us, most especially as we have received from our God. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.